Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. August 31st, 1803, two explorers, two captain and lieutenant in the army, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, they set out to explore the newly acquired Louisiana Purchase. It was a broad swath of land that stretched from Louisiana all the way up to Montana. We had uh, purchased it as a nation from France for the incredible rate of $18 a square mile. Um, Of course, France didn't control all of that land, only a small portion of it. And I won't say we got played, but uh, we got a lot for a very little, and most of it was untouched, unexplored, and uncontrolled. Or it was controlled, I should say, by the Native American nations, most notably the Sioux, who were one of the fiercest tribes on the continent. Thomas Jefferson, however, was uh, so thrilled with this new acquisition, he wanted to make use of it right away and to chart a pathway of trade from the east all the way through to the west coast and beyond on its seas. And so he commissioned an expedition to map the territory beginning in St. Louis all the way up through the Pacific Northwest where we could uh, move back and forth. It was Lewis and Clark who went on this expedition and for three years through treacherous winters and roadways, rivers and mountains, they made their long journey and then found their way back a little over three years later in 1806. They were helped along the way with, with um, logistics, navigation through the rivers and mountains, navigation through the language and cultures of all the various Indian nations who were there by several Native American guides. It was considered one of the most perilous And courageous, and yet one of the most important expeditions in the founding of our country for its long-term economic prosperity. And I I sometimes wonder what it must have felt like standing on the outskirts of St. Louis, the northern border of St. Louis, looking out on all of the vast land, what Lewis and Clark must have felt like. As they were headed out on the Columbia River, not knowing what was set in front of them, having maybe a few trinkets to trade with hostile tribes who were awaiting them, but it had to be daunting. And they had to ask themselves at some point whether all of the sacrifices and all of the risks would be worth it. Of course, in hindsight, we know that it was, but there was no way to know on the front end. There had to be some temptation at some point to want to turn back and take the well-established roads to the cities on the eastern seaboard. 
Well, in a distant way, that historical event relates to our text this morning. Because in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus presents to us a journey, really two pathways with two different characteristics. One is a broad and easy path. The other, a hard and narrow, difficult and painful pathway. But the most important thing about these two pathways is not their relative difficulty or ease of travel, it's their destination. One leads to destruction, the other leads to salvation. Listen to the way Jesus describes it in Matthew seven thirteen. Enter by the narrow gate, he says. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is very obviously a discussion of two roads, but really it's the beginning of the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He ends his great sermon with four warnings beginning here in verse 13 and stretching through the end of chapter 7, each one of them presenting a pair of contrast. Here, a contrast of two pathways. After this, a contrast of two trees, or we might say two fruits. A contrast of two declarations. After that, a contrast of two builders. And the purpose of all of these warnings is to demand a choice from you. It is to press you towards a decision, to get you to ponder the outcomes of that choice. And the point of all of it is that there are two choices and only two choices. There's not a whole buffet of choices. There are just two with two very defined destinies, or in this case of the pathways, two very defined destinations. Jesus defines these destinies in various ways throughout these these warnings these contrasts one destination is called life Jesus goes on to describe it as bearing fruit or entering his kingdom or understanding or excuse me withstanding the rains and the floods and the winds of judgment the other destination he simply calls destruction or later He describes it as being cut down, denied access, collapsing in the face of judgment. And all of this is, again, pressing you for a choice. It's about choosing the right pathway that has the right destination, choosing the one that leads to life. And Jesus is making it clear that there is only one. There's only one way. You might like a scenario where there's all kinds of choices. You might want to imagine that you could choose any number of pathways with all kinds of scenery and all kinds of terrain and all kinds of settings that are to your liking. But Jesus doesn't present you with that choice. You have only two options. And only one of them will lead you to eternal life. The other 
very clearly leads you to destruction. Makes me think a little bit about a trip that my wife and I took when I was living in California and over Christmas break from school. And we had driven up to Northern California from Los Angeles to visit some friends, stayed to go to church with them in the Bay Area, uh, in, and, uh, and then after church, uh, hung around to take lunch together with them before we decided to head on our way back down to Los Angeles, really looking forward to the trip because we were going to take the uh, well-known Pacific Coast Highway which is one of the most iconic roads in America that goes all along the cliffs and coast of California. And so after our meal and fellowship, we sort of got on the road and drove around the bay, enjoyed the scenery of Monterey, passed by Carmel by the sea, and began to uh, make our way down the coast. Unfortunately, it was during, as I said, Christmas break. Winter time, early sundowns, and uh, dark nights. In fact, it was quite cloudy that night. There was no moon and no stars. And as we passed by Carmel by the sea and made our way down the coast, we quickly realized we weren't going to see anything. There was going to be no scenic route. All that we had were a whole lot of twists and turns on steep cliffs with no lights and a very, very dark road ahead. We started to wonder, you know, what we should do. We weren't making very good headway, having to slow down uh, for every turn, every curve. We began to wonder whether or not we could make it over the mountains. We had water on our right and cliffs uh, or mountains on our left. We pulled out our map, you know, back in those days, there were no uh, handheld devices. We pulled out our map to see if we could find some sort of little trail or something that would get us up over the mountains to the interstate, but to no avail. There was nowhere, nowhere that we could find to deviate from our path. We had only two choices, either to press ahead through all of the dark, twisting turns and road without really even being able to enjoy the scenery so that we could make it home uh, that night to Los Angeles or to turn back, to give up, go back, maybe try to find a hotel room and stay the night and jump on the freeway interstate the next day. This is the kind of journey Jesus is talking about, except there is no next day. There is no alternative pathway. He's calling you to a road, a difficult road, a hard and narrow road, but the only road that you have that will lead you to life. The only road that you have that will take you to a place of rest. There are no shortcuts, no back roads, just two pathways occupied by two very different crowds and leading to two very different destinations. The first one he describes in verse 13, we might call the popular pathway to destruction. Or as he says in verse 13, the gate that is wide and the way that's easy 
that leads to destruction. He's describing a pathway that's very inviting. It accommodates a lot of people. There are many, he says, who enter by it. They all fit on this road without feeling cramped at all. There's no need to shed any of their baggage. They can keep all of their ideas and personal opinions. There's room enough for all of that, for all of their pride, for all of their inflated view of self-importance, for all of their inflated views of their own opinions. There's plenty of space to bring all that stuff along on this wide and easy path. All kinds of lifestyle choices, all kinds of connections and networks. There's no need to shed yourself of anything, either as you enter the gate or as you walk along the road. And it really takes no effort. There's no resistance, no force of will is necessary to take you here. In fact, You can just sort of drift along with the crowds as they're moving down the way like a dead piece of wood bobbing along as it floats down the river. People on the road are talking, no doubt, about all of their different journeys. They're speaking about all of their different experiences and their different opinions about all kinds of things. The conversation, I'm sure, is interesting It could give you the impression that they all took different roads and they all have different destinations. But for all of their chatter and for all of their gibbering, they all entered through a single gate, the gate of self-justification. And they're all pursuing the same pathway to the same destination which is destruction. They're all on the same road. They all came through the same gate. They may crow and they may babble about all of their opinions, about all kinds of things, justifying their lifestyle and their behavior and their actions citing all kinds of sources and experts and whatever it might be, but all of them are walking the pathway of self-justification and self-destruction. C.S. Lewis describes a time somewhere in his mid-teenage years when he felt the freedom of throwing off the burden of what he called false duties that he had constructed around his faith. He says he became fascinated with the preternatural or the magical, the supernatural, apart from Christianity, the magical and mystical world of the occult. His own speculative imagination ignited and inflamed itself And, he said in a well-worn phrase, he found himself altering his words from that time forward from I believe to one does feel. Lewis says this, 
from the tyrannous noon of revelation of Scripture, I passed into the cool evening of higher thought where there's nothing to be obeyed, nothing to be believed, except what is either comforting or exciting. With that, C.S. Lewis describes how he shed his Christian faith as a young person and ventured down the pathway of infatuation with his own mind. For some, it might be a fascination with other worldviews like occultism, spiritism, magic, extrasensory perception. For others, some other spiritual, religious thought, New Age thought, ritualistic religion. Still for others, it's pure vainglory, it's materialism or rank atheism or a love of wealth, a love of the material world. But all of it is linked together by the same uh, self-justifying attitude, the same self-love, the same internal perception that drives you to trivialize the negative consequences of your actions and fantasize about all the potential within yourself. People naturally naturally gravitate to paths like this with any number of schemes of internal self-justification, but the bottom line is what they want is what they want. Their greatest desire is freedom, freedom to think and believe the way they want to believe, to define the world the way they want to see it, and there's no room for any kind of external authority telling them to do this or don't do that. The crowd on the road talks with all kinds of voices. They discuss all kinds of ideas. They can cite all kinds of sources. But ultimately, the real authority is themselves. They've made themselves the ultimate judge of what is right and wrong. And they have rejected God as the real judge. So they're all on the same road. No matter what their stated philosophy, no matter what their stated religion, they're all on the same road. And unfortunately, they're all headed to the same destination, which is destruction. Now, if all you knew were the insulated confines of this church family, it may not appear to you to be like this. You might have surrounded yourself with only Christian people, only Christian friends, and it might seem like people in your life are all walking towards God. We know even in this kind of environment, though, there are those who quietly resist God's authority and resist God's word and want to exalt their own opinions. But it might seem like those people are very few. It might seem like everyone you know seems to be walking on the Christian way. But if you venture outside of these familiar boundaries, it doesn't take long to figure out that the pathway of Christ is the narrow way. Everyone else is on a different road. Everyone else is following a different path. 
you quickly realize that it would be a lot easier on your life if you just went along with everyone else. You just drifted along with them. And as I said, it takes no real effort, no force of will. You can quickly become enamored with the ease of that broad pathway. You really don't have to give a lot of thought about its destination, about where it's leading. You just kind of get attracted to the whole journey. You get, get enamored with the whole crowd. All your friends are there, these friends who are more important to you than finding the right gate or even having the right destination. And when someone comes along and tells the people on this road that it leads to destruction, they will doubt it, they will deny it, and their primary evidence will be everyone else on the pathway. How exhilarating it makes them feel to be going along with all of their friends wherever they're going. And I have to admit, it's always more enjoyable to agree with people than disagree. To be recognized by other people as accepting and sympathetic and broad-minded and tolerant or whatever it might be, it's always easy. There's always a crowd that will embrace you. All the people around you may seem to reciprocate. There's plenty of tolerance to go around. No rules, no rigid morality. There's plenty of diversity of opinion and room for more. You can even say you love Jesus if you want, as long as you're accepting of others. And as you look across the way, you see in the distance another gate and another road and it has a sign over it that says if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes even his own life he cannot be my disciple and you think to yourself who in the world would ever want to enter a place like that Which brings us to the second pathway that Jesus describes in verse 14 that we could call the troublesome trail to life. Jesus just simply calls it the narrow gate. In fact, he calls it that twice, beginning of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14. Its main characteristic is that it's narrow, it is restricting. Both the gate and the road, there's not much room. There's no room on this road for other opinions, other ways of thinking. There's no room for pride. There's no room for inflated views of yourself or inflated views of your own opinions. There's no room really for anything. The only way that you can enter through this gate, the only way you can travel on this road, is if you leave everything behind. Everything. This is the demand that Jesus puts on those who want to enter this gate. 
Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The word deny in Greek actually is a mean, it means to, to refuse association with something or someone. Or even to state that something isn't right or isn't true. So, if you want to enter this gate, and if you want to be Christ's disciple, if you want to find forgiveness and eternal life, you have to refuse association with the person that you are. You have to declare that you are not right. There's something wrong. All of this suggests that you reject yourself, you reject your own answers, you reject your own wisdom, you become tired of your sinful ways, you want nothing to do with the old life anymore, it's brought you nothing in the end but misery and pain. Saving faith, in other words, isn't just some sort of emotionally detached decision, it comes with a disdain for your sinful self, an admission of your own unworthiness, a plea to the Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And this is what Jesus means whenever he says that you take up your cross, which in those days would have been universally recognized as an instrument for one purpose and one alone, which is The brutal slaying of someone. It'd be like saying, pick up your electric chair and follow me. Take your place in it every day. He was saying, in other words, if you're not willing to give up everything and to give up even your own self, to deny even your own self, you can't enter this gate. And you can't walk on my road. He goes on in Luke 9.24, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What good does it do you To be on the journey on the broad and easy road if it's going to cost you yourself. It's going to cost you your soul. On the other hand, entering through the narrow gate is going to cost you everything else. You give up everything. If you try to hold on to your personal Opinions or your personal agenda or your personal plan, your inflated view, as I said, of yourself, you, you lose forgiveness, you lose heaven, you lose life. To enter this pathway, to go through this gate, you have to be willing to give up whatever it takes, whatever kinds of relationships, whatever kinds of goals, whatever kinds of idols... You have to forsake the crowd. You have to forsake popularity. You have to forsake sometimes even family. 
Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. For whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So entering this gate requires you to renounce all of that stuff. It's going to make you make a choice. It's going to, in some cases, make your life more difficult. It might make your family life worse. It might open a rift, an impassable gulf between you and the people who are not walking on this pathway. And some of those people may be the closest people in your life. And that rupture can happen in the most dear relationships. Resulting in some of the most painful experiences you will ever go through. And if you're not willing to pay that price and face that trauma and suffer that conflict and possibly have a split, a permanent split even with your own family, then you're not worthy to enter this gate. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to enter the narrow gate that leads to life, leads to heaven, here is its requirement. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Him. Give up everything. You enter empty-handed. You strip off all of your self-reliance, all of your self-justification, all of your own answers, all of your own proposed wisdom. As the hymn writer says, nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross I cling. You give it up. You give up the crowds, you give up the friends, you give up family if necessary, you give up whatever it is. And then once you're on the road, it doesn't necessarily get easier. It's a difficult road, Jesus says, a narrow road, which doesn't allow for deviation. In fact, this word for narrow is picked up by later biblical writers as a description of the kind of suffering and persecution that some Christians were to go through in the first century. And they described this sort of pressure that came against them from the world. This is the narrowness that Jesus talks about. And it's a road that doesn't allow for deviation. When Moses gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, Deuteronomy 5.32, he said, Be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. When God commanded the king of Israel to make a copy of the law for himself at the beginning of his reign and to read it every day of his life, 
He was to do so, Deuteronomy 17 says, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left. When Joshua entered the promised land, the Lord exhorted Joshua, be strong and courageous, be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. Proverbs 4, verse 25 Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze straight before you. Ponder the pathway of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. And do not swerve to the right or to the left. It's a very narrow pathway. And it doesn't allow for deviation. And there is no room for other opinions. Very confining. Restricted all the way, hemmed in on all sides. No allowance to depart to your own agenda. So why in the world would anyone choose this pathway that causes so much pain to themselves and so much pain to their loved ones? Why would anyone choose to do this Why would they give up all of their self-assertion, all of their own self-determination, all of their own self-interest? Why would they do that? Why would they put themselves on a confining and narrow and difficult and pressing pathway? Why? Because it is the truth. That's the only reason. Because they were tired of the lies. The empty and vacuous lies that they found themselves falling into again and again on the crowded, broad, easy street. People walk this narrow pathway because they have learned that there's no gain in letting yourself be deceived. They follow the narrow pathway because it's the only pathway that is true. It says it leads to life and when it makes that declaration, it is true. Very few are willing to admit this. As I said earlier, most really aren't even interested to talk about the destination. Most people don't even want to think about it They don't want to think about what's down the road. They're really not interested in giving serious thought to where their pathway is leading them. They're really not interested in truth. They just want to cling to whatever sort of exhilaration they can find in the fleeting moments of every day. And so consequently, Jesus says this narrow gate, this hard way that leads to life, At the end of verse 14, those who find it are few. Luke 13, 23, a man approached Jesus from one of the villages where he had been ministering and asked him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? He was just making an observation. Where Jesus, on his final journey to Jerusalem as he's preparing to be crucified, he's just making an observation that after three years 
of healing, of teaching, of feeding, of raising the dead. After three years, there were remarkably few disciples who were following Christ. Jesus responds to his question with this statement. Strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. What does he mean? He's saying that there's a lot of people who are going to be seeking the rewards of heaven, the rewards of life. They're going to want to be on the road that leads them to eternity, but they will not be able to enter. Why? Because self-denial is hard. Confessing your sin is hard. Breaking your pride, renouncing your own ideas, declaring the foolishness and the destructiveness of your own way, is hard and few people will be willing to do that strive it's the word agonizomai it's a word that implies an opponent it came out of the arena which which described those contests where there was always some sort of uh, battle or fight in some sense maybe a wrestling match so wrestle and fight To get into the narrow gate. Make all of your efforts to overcome all the potential obstacles that are there. Because many people will seek it and will not be able to. And so you have to fight. You have to fight against all of your self-justification. You have to fight against all of your self-assertion. You have to fight against all of your inflated pride all of your inflated ideas of yourself and you have to strive to enter the correct gate. Luke 16, 16, Jesus says the law and the prophets were up until John, but since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. That word describes a violent, a violent effort. In other words, a person, when they reach this point of realization that the broad road they're on is not leading them to any satisfaction in their own heart, when they come to the point of actually admitting their own self-deceit, when they come to the point of actually seeing their own pride, they become so violently desperate, grasping so much for the truth that they will do anything to get into that gate. They will leave anything behind. They will destroy, they will rip away, they will demolish whatever it is that's in their life that would prevent them from squeezing through that narrow gate and walking on that narrow road because they have finally realized that that is the road that is true. Jonathan Edwards, commenting on this verse in Luke 16, says, They therefore that are pressing into the kingdom of God 
go on with such engagedness that they break through the difficulties that are in their way. They're so set for salvation that those things by which others are discouraged and stopped and turned back do not stop them, but they press through. Persons ought to be so resolved for heaven that if by any means they can obtain it, they will. This is the kind of desperation it takes to get through the gate. And this is why it is hard. Because very few will ever reach that point of self-assessment. Very few will ever take themselves off the throne of judgment and recognize that they stand before the judgment of God. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is such that it's like an infinite treasure that's hidden in a field where when the person who finds it realizes it, he sells everything he has to buy that field. That kind of radical action is rare. And Jesus knew it. And so he says, strive. Battle. So that you can enter this gate and walk this road and reach this destination of eternal life. It's hard It's difficult because you want to cling to all of those things in this world that have brought you momentary temporal comfort, that brought you a thrill from time to time. You want a pathway that doesn't require that kind of sacrifice and you want a pathway that doesn't require the kind of self-renunciation, the kind of humility that Jesus demands. You want a different pathway, and yet Jesus is clear. That pathway doesn't exist. There's only two roads. There's a road everyone's on, and it's leading to destruction. And there's a narrow road, the difficult road, that leads to life. Everything that you're holding on to that prevents you from getting into that. You get on the narrow road. You strip all that stuff out of your life. And then once you're through the gate and you realize all that stuff that you had attached to yourself, your inflated opinions, your inflated wisdom, your pride, your self-centered goals, all that stuff wasn't giving you life. It was sabotaging you, hurting you, undermining you, destroying you. What you thought was bringing you life was no life at all. Jesus says it's only those who lose their life who are willing to find it. I was 17 years old. 
at a Wednesday night youth group listening to a girl talk about how Christ had changed her life. I was sitting in the back, a big football player, captain of my team, sort of had an image on campus that I wanted to maintain, but I couldn't help but to be broken down in tears, realizing that this girl had something that I didn't have. And I knew it. I was so proud, I didn't want anyone to see me crying, so I slipped out the door as the minister was praying, went out to the parking lot and got into my car, was driving back home and passed by the football complex and I saw my coach's car sitting in the parking lot and I, I knew him to be a religious man and so I pulled into the parking lot, knocked on the door. It was late at night on a Wednesday night. He opened up the door, invited me in and I started to tell him my story. And I told him how I had this image that I kept up in front of everyone, but inside, I realized I was so empty. Inside, I realized I was rotting. I had um, achieved so many of my goals. I was as successful as I could be as a senior in high school and on my sports teams and everything. But inside, I knew that if I gained the whole world, it would be meaningless if I lost my own soul. And yet I struggled. I struggled with what it would mean if I were to make this decision to follow Christ that I knew God was calling me to make. I struggled with what it would mean for all that stuff, everything I'd worked so hard for, all the friends, all the accolades, all the popularity, all that stuff. I just struggled with what it would mean for me to give all that stuff up. And that dear man, that coach told me, he said, you know, none of it, none of it is anywhere near the cost of eternity. You will so regret if you give up eternity to hold on to that temporal stuff. It's exactly what I needed to hear. I needed to enter the narrow gate And the only way I would enter it is if I let all that stuff go. That's the decision Jesus wants you to make. That's what he's calling you to do. That's how he wants you to respond. And he's pleading with you to give up your pride, to give up your self-determination, to give up everything so that you can have eternal life. Let's stand together. We'll be dismiss with a word of prayer and if you're here this morning and the Lord is calling you and you know this message is for you let me encourage you before you leave here today to stop by and see us in the welcome center we have a a place set up down the hall to the right I'm there others who are there And we would love to hear the story of how the Lord is speaking to your heart. We'd love to pray with you, to seek the Lord with you, and to help you find this narrow pathway to life. Father, we're so grateful to 
you, that you gave us a path, that we who were on the pathway to destruction were not left to ourselves. You gave us a gate whereby we could enter, and it is through Christ and only through Him. Lord, we pray that You would help us, that we would not deviate from that pathway if we are on it, not turning to the right or to the left, but always trusting in the grace of Christ, renouncing ourself as having any merit or answers. May we cling to Him. And I pray for those who are here this morning who are clinging to the false hopes of the broad and popular way. Open their eyes, O Lord. Give them contrition, brokenness, honesty to deal with the guilt and the pain and the shame of their sin. Help them to see their pride and to humble themselves so that they can enter the narrow gate. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.